This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it, and there are two olive trees by it one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Thank you, Mark, for the reading. Thanks, Elder Wood, for the prayer. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, I want to introduce... Uh, two people who are here visiting for the first time. Uh, I, I'm guessing they're a couple. I'm, I'm not, not going to assume, though. Caroline and Josh are with us. So Caroline and Josh, raise your hand for They're sitting in the back. Let's give them a warm welcome. Please uh, stop them afterwards and get to know them. Ask some questions about who they are, okay? Um, well, good to see all of you. Great that you can make it out today. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Zechariah, and we're going to be thinking through chapter four together. As I've said a few times before, uh, Zechariah was given eight visions in total, and he was called to share these visions with God's people in order to offer them comfort and hope as they were in the process of essentially rebuilding their lives after suffering in exile uh, for many, many years. And so today we're going to reflect on uh, the fifth vision, which was a vision of a burning lampstand fueled by oil coming from two olive trees, one standing on its left and one on its right. So we, we have to first take a moment to grasp the basic meaning of this vision. All right, so I, I prepared a, a few slides to help uh, help us appreciate what Zechariah may have seen. Uh, so here are a few renderings uh, to help stir your imagination. I want you to look at these visuals. You can show the first one. I want you to look at these visuals and, and come up with your own idea of, of what it could mean given your own Bible knowledge. And I'm gonna really ask uh, whoever's gonna lead the next Bible trivia for our church, I'm gonna ask them to you know, include one of these as, as the questions. Um, so listen very, or watch very closely and, and think carefully, okay? By the way, uh, if you weren't there, 
we, we did have a Bible trivia competition, right? Uh, we, we don't have these too often, but um, we had one a few weeks ago, and, and I think we had like eight groups or so. All of them did really well except one, okay? I'm not gonna mention any names. Uh, you know who you are. All I'll say is that it's a very special group, okay? And uh, it's a group that wrote down as one of their answers, Imhotep, right? Um, that's how bad it was for them. So look at, the, look at the slides, all right? So you have a lampstand, a bowl is mentioned, so there's the bowl. You have also these two branches sticking out toward the bowl, uh, essentially pouring oil into the bowl and, and fueling the lamp. Uh, next slide shows just a, this more beautiful rendition there, more realistic, uh, but same image essentially, okay? I thought you'd appreciate a clear picture. And if that's, if that's fuzzy for you, just kind of peek back and there's a better screen in the back that's clear. And then the last slide, uh, I, I inserted this one for all of you who are more artistic. It's a more artistic rendition. Um, so I hope you appreciate it, okay? <laughs> Got three slides for you. Uh, let me ask you, you know, what do you think, what do you think the lampstand would have meant for God's people uh, in their particular context? Okay, think about that first, right? What, what is a lampstand? Right? What, what, what would that have stood for in their minds? You know, given that the lampstand was one of the main features of God's temple, okay, and that the people of God, after returning from exile, their, their, their first duty was essentially to rebuild God's temple. They, they would have first associated in their minds, right, when they thought about the lampstand, they would have immediately thought of the temple that, had not yet been built, right? So if you see the lampstand as a symbol of God's temple, you would be exactly correct. But it would also be helpful to remember that lampstands in the Bible are meant to represent the church and its faithful witness in this dark world we're living in. For instance, in the book of Revelation, there's a vision of seven golden lampstands, and those lampstands were meant to directly represent the seven churches that were located in Asia Minor during that time, in modern-day Turkey. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 14, the New Testament says, We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, guess what that's referring to, right? That's speaking about the people of God, the church, essentially, now, the fact that the lampstand in this vision could both represent God's temple and the church should not surprise us since the temple motif in Scripture right, organically develops throughout the Bible to eventually signify God's people, okay? Uh, if you didn't know, the word organic or organically is Pastor Hugh's favorite word. Okay, for those of you who are listening in to the podcast over the past few weeks, you know, okay? For whatever reason, my, my wife doesn't like that word, but, you know, uh, if you're curious as to why, you can ask her afterwards, right? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> so, look, we, the church, are God's temple in whom God's spirit dwells, right? That, that is basic teaching of, of Scripture, right? That's how the temple motif develops. So when you think of the lampstand in this vision, know that it's meant to represent God's temple, of course, but 
It's also meant to represent God's people, right, who are called to shine his light, not our light, his light in this dark world. Now, the reason why this vision of the lampstand was so relevant to the Jews during this particular time in history was because the, the pressing question that they had during this period was, look, are we going to survive and endure under this new Persian leadership? Or is our light going to be permanently snuffed out by our oppressors? This was a real pressing concern. Now, I'd be surprised if any of you knew this, but the book of Ezra informs us that there was a local Persian governor named Tatanai who actively prevented God's people from continuing on with their building projects. So, you know, uh, you should know that when they first returned from exile, they were all excited, and so they, they did successfully lay down the foundation of God's temple. But the thing is, uh, their building project came to a halt primarily because people like Tatanai stood in their way, right? It's true. I mean, this was in the Bible trivia, by the way, right? It, it, King Cyrus was the answer to one of the questions. Right? King Cyrus was the one who freed the Jews and gave them the green light to rebuild their city and rebuild the temple of God. But see, King Cyrus is long gone now. He's not in the picture. Darius is now the ruling king. And then you have these local governors like Tatanai, who was like this mountain blocking their way. And that's one big reason why God's people were greatly discouraged during this period. Right? The political opposition was insurmountable in their mind. And if they weren't able to build God's temple, they knew in their hearts that it would just be a matter of time until they became completely snuffed out as a people. That's how important the temple was. Now, this passage reminded me of a stressful moment during Stephen and Joy's wedding that we celebrated a few months ago. Uh, they were here actually attending during nine o'clock, so uh, it was kind of fun to see them react. But you know, one of the most suspenseful parts of a wedding is when there are live candles involved. <laughs> and you're not sure if the candles will stay lit or not, right? And, you know, the, I think many of you, you chose not to use candles recently for whatever reason, but uh, it was pretty commonplace, you know, uh, early on. But, you know, Stephen and Joy, they decided to use the whole thing, and, and there was a unity candle ceremony in the middle, middle of the service. So, you know, the, the unity candle ceremony, I appreciate. I, I like it because it's meant to symbolize, right, the lasting union of this happy couple who just got married. I think it's very meaningful. Uh, it's very memorable as well. But the thing is, during Stephen and Joy's wedding, they were struggling. We were all struggling to light the candle because the wick was buried into the wax, okay? And so they had the lighter on, but they couldn't, they, they couldn't get the, the candle to actually light up. And you know how it is, like, you know, they're, they're doing their thing, but even a, a minute can feel like, you know, 10, 20 minutes in that, in that kind of setting. And so I, you could kind of feel the tension build up in the air. I was sort of waiting on the side. 
And then I decided to step in because I could tell that they were, you know, getting a little bit nervous. And as they were frantically trying to melt the, the wax away, finally the, the, the wick kind of got loose, but it wasn't tall enough, right? And so that's when I decided to kind of go in there with my bare hands, right, with the intent to symbolically save their marriage. But, but this is really what happened. As, as I was about to do that, Joy, she slaps my hand, right? <laughs> and she says, you know, and she had good attention. She said, Pastor Billy, you're gonna burn yourself, right? And I said, <laughs> I was, okay, then I guess I'll just stand here and have you guys sweat the whole time. Finally, the, the wedding coordinator uh, came. She had to actually walk up to the stage and she did exactly what I was gonna do. But, but Joy, you know, she led her. I don't know what, what, like, what. So, you know, maybe they're not friends. I don't know, <laughs> maybe she was. Um, so the, the candle was lit long enough for the ceremony to continue, right? <laughs> uh, good times, good times. Stressful time, but it was a very memorable time. Advice for all of you, okay? If you're gonna use candles in your ceremony, make sure the wick is long enough, okay? And not buried into the wax. Now, if you've ever had such an experience of trying to keep a fire alive, this vision today is meant to encourage you because the two olive trees in this vision are there to be a constant fuel source for this lampstand, right? The vision is telling us that this lampstand is designed to never burn out. Praise God. Now, does this mean that we're to place our hope in some special kind of oil, like olive oil here? No, oil, as you may know, oil is often used in the Bible as a symbol of the work of God's spirit. And so the main point of the vision is summarized in verse six. That's the key verse, right? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. As you hear those words, you're to think, okay, not by what? Human might, right? Not by human power, but by the power of God's spirit. That's what this is. Brothers and sisters, are you discouraged? Are you tired? Is the opposition you're facing in life, does it seem too great for you to handle? Right? Do you feel like you're close to maybe being burnt out, then listen to God's message for you today, right? He speaks these words to your weary soul, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Right? May those words encourage you, and give you hope and strength. I want you to see if this thought resonates with you, okay? Now, one of the main reasons why we burn out as people. See, you know, when, when life gets so busy, right, what, what tends to happen? We forget that our strength comes from God, and we try to do everything by our own power and strength. Isn't that true? When we live so self-dependently, instead of being God-dependent, what happens? The many obstacles in our lives, you know, whether they come in the form of political opposition, or maybe a strained relationship that's causing you so much stress, maybe for some of you it's a personal illness, these things can over time greatly discourage you. And our light, your light, my light, can eventually begin 
to flicker. Have you been there? I know you've been there before. And maybe some of you are, are feeling that right now. And if that's the case, you need to remember where your help comes from. God is, again, he's directly speaking to you today, these words, not by might, my child, my servant, my son, my daughter, not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit. Depend upon me, call upon me for help. Look to me, I will assist you. Brothers and sisters, take those words to heart and allow God to revive your soul. He will not cause your light to flicker if you call upon him for help. Amen? Brothers, sisters, this morning, God not only wants us to know that it's by his spirit that he will build his temple and in turn build up his people, but he wants us to envision him as the great mountain mover, I didn't make that up. I got that from verse seven. God says, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. In other words, I will level this mountain. Now, this is not meant to be some kind of feel-good message that tells you how God's going to move every mountain in your life that stands in your way and promise you success in all that you do. No, you gotta remember the context here. The people of God were called to do the will of God by building God's temple, not their own temple. Right? It wasn't their own ambitions. It was a godly ambition. It was a God-assigned task. And so God is not talking about any mountain that stands in your way. He's talking about those particular mountains that hinder you from doing his work, right? Those mountains that are preventing you from living out your life in obedience to his will. He's promising to level those mountains so that you can continue to faithfully press on and not be snuffed out. So I don't really, I don't want you to think, brothers, sisters, we live in such a, morally chaotic world, do we not? I don't want you to think that you can live any way you want to and expect God to just, you know, be your lackey and pave the way for you. Oh, you wanna do this? Sure, I'll pave the way. I'll level all mountains in front of you, no matter what you wanna do. No, that's not the picture here. <clears throat> if that's the message you wanna hear, you've come to the wrong church. At this church, if we see you living by the wrong plan because it's not God's plan, that you've been rebelling against God's plan, we're gonna say, look, brother, sister, we love you, but we wish your plans will fail, okay? May your plans fail. Okay? I'll be the first one to say that. If I see you living in rebellion, may God actually erect more mountains in front of you, right? And cause you to stumble if that's the path you're walking down. As I was reflecting upon this passage, uh, a well-known quote by D.L. Moody came to mind. He once said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Okay? I don't want you to be succeeding in things that don't matter eternally. 
So if you're living a life of disobedience, my prayer is that God would, in his love, chastise you and stop you from further walking in disobedience. But if you're doing your best to live a life of faith and a life that is pleasing to the Lord and there's a mountain standing in your way preventing you from living out God's will, then I ask you to look to God. Ask him in faith to move those mountains. And those mountains will be moved. That is God's promise to us today. If you have any doubts that God will move these relatively small mountains in your life, remember, brothers, sisters, that we can trust God to do these things because he has already removed the greatest mountain of all, our mountain of sin, right? our mountain of debt. He removed that, which separated us from him. He did that greater work. So how, 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 how why would we not trust that he will do the smaller works? Does not Romans 8.32 say, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he did the greater thing, why would he not do the smaller things? Let me, let me paraphrase that Romans passage for us. I, I paraphrase it this way. He who moved the greatest mountain that separated us from his love, how will he not also move the smaller mountains that prevent us from loving and serving him? That's the logic. Now, besides feeling overwhelmed by the mountains in our lives, another reason why we could grow weary and discouraged over time is when we begin to despise what God calls the day of small things. I get that from verse 10, okay? I never make stuff up, okay? It's all in the Bible. Verse 10 says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. They shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel at the end, right? It's a, it's a beautiful picture. What does this mean, though, right? I'm sure if you're, if you're you know, looking at this for the first time, you have no idea what this means. So we, again, we go to Ezra for help, okay? Ezra chapter three, it explains what's going on. Ezra is a history book, okay? You gotta go to history, history books sometimes to understand what the pro, prophetical books say. So Ezra three says, here's the context. This, this is right after they return from exile. They lay down the foundation, okay? All the people, it says, shouted with a great shout because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, okay? Everyone was celebrating. It's a big worship service. But then look at verse 12, chapter three. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, in other words, the older generation, okay, like Mark and myself, <laughs> like Joel over there, we, we, who, who've been around for a longer time, we, we've, seen, we've seen the original temple, okay, we've seen Solomon's temple, the one that was demolished, by the invaders. We were there, we saw how glorious it was. So the older generation who's seen the first temple, guess what it says? They wept. So in the midst of this like big worship service where people were celebrating, the older generation actually wept. They weren't shouting for joy, they weren't cheering, they were weeping with a loud voice, it says, 
when, that they, when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Why? <laughs> because in their minds, is this it? We, we've seen the glory of the original temple that Solomon erected. I mean, this is nothing. This is, this is so trivial. <laughs> this is so sad. That was your reaction. Haggai chapter 2 verse 3 has a similar uh, verse. <clears throat> it says, who is left, the prophet speaks on behalf of God, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's speaking to the old generation, again, who's, who's seen the prior glory. How do you see it now? And, and God speaks for his prophet. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? God knows. God knows that, humanly speaking, Solomon's temple was much more glorious and majestic and beautiful. It was like 10 times greater than the second temple that, was, that these people were trying to erect and establish. You, you can know based on the foundation that was laid, it was nothing. People were despising the rebuilding of God's house why? Because they've seen the prior glory. For many, the glory of the new temple just simply paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. And so they thought to themselves, is this really worth it? I'm so disappointed. The task is too small. Maybe this work isn't really worth giving our lives to. Is this what we waited for all these years? Can't you see? Right? Another reason why we burn out from our work is when we view our work as trivial and not worth our time. When we have that reaction, is this it? Is this really what we're assigned to do? You, you should know what I mean, right? If you're just working to get a paycheck, if that's all that your work is to you and you don't believe in the work you're doing, then your job gives you no joy. And your job actually, no matter how easy your work may be, and I know some of your jobs are really easy. You can just kind of sit at home, watch K-dramas and get a paycheck, okay? Right? Right? No matter how easy your jobs are, it, it sucks the life right out of you because you don't really think it's worth it. It's just, it's gonna get you a paycheck. On the other hand, if you believe that the work you're doing is valuable and God-honoring and that through your work you're actually blessing those around you, even people all around the world, see, then no matter how hard the work may be, no matter how many hours and hours you pour into it, your work is gonna offer you a sense of profound joy and fulfillment. Isn't that true? So I really must love my job here, right? I've been around way too long. I, really, I must really love my job here. I must. <laughs> now, some of you may know this, but I, I've been asked to serve as a state of clerk of our presbytery, uh, which is, if you didn't know, a Korean language presbytery. That means I need to constantly be communicating both in English and Korean. And, and you know, through text, through emails, even in person at times. 
So the work itself is very stressful and hard for me. And honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a heavily administrative job. And, and um, I never thought of myself as administratively gifted, but I guess uh, people disagree. And so they gave me this task. And uh, I, I find administration to often uh, be very tedious and small work. I normally don't find fulfillment in it. That's why I give it all to Xiong. Okay? <laughs> you, do, you do all the... <laughs> But I've been able to do the work so far because there are people who have been reminding me of the importance of the work that I've been called to do. You see, if I didn't do my job correctly, even this past month, there, there would be a lot more dysfunction in our local churches. And guess what? Pastor Xiong, he would not be getting ordained this year. And, Paul, and our brother Paul Choi, he, he would not be serving as our pastoral intern, at least not yet. It's because all the paperwork was processed correctly in time that they're able to be ordained and, and we are to receive, you know, brother Paul under care as a pastoral intern. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> we burn out more easily when we start believing in what the governor tatanize of the world think about God and God's priorities. We cannot listen to those lies. Is the church really that essential? It really bothers me that that simple question, it kind of shook a lot of Christians a few years ago. Is worshiping God that important? Can't you compromise on God's word just a little bit, kind of tweak things here and there, you know? Sexuality, gender, eh, what's the big deal? See, if you start believing in the lies of Satan, then you will begin to trivialize God himself along with anything associated with him. And in the end, you will begin to despise the very things God values. It's the world that mainly despises small things, not God. Weren't you surprised how flattening the curve for two weeks all of a sudden became not attending church for two whole years? How did that happen? And for some, it meant losing their faith altogether. They were doing fine, and then uh, they, they decided to take a break for two weeks, and they never returned. What happened? You see how small things matter in the long run? Here's a well-known quote. I thought it was appropriate to share. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a lifestyle. You reap a lifestyle, you reap a character. You reap, or you sow a character, you reap a destiny. That's how that works. Do not despise small things. This would also be a good time to be reminded of how the kingdom of God is meant to grow. Matthew chapter 13 says that the kingdom of God is like this small mustard seed. It's unimpressive and unassuming in its nature, but it eventually grows to be the largest tree in the garden. Do not despise small things. God uses small things and ordinary means to accomplish great and extraordinary things. 
in this life. And God promises in Haggai chapter two and along with our passage today that the latter glory, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory of even Solomon's temple. Okay? He's, not, he's not saying that the second temple is gonna be grander than the first temple in size or in grandeur, no. Pointing to the future, how God is going to develop his people, how his kingdom will be much fuller in glory and scope. The temple points to what's to come in the future. That means glory will come. Greater glory will come in the end. See, but God's glory is meant to be accomplished through small and humble means. Do not despise small things. Christ came riding on a donkey, right? Or you can even say he came as a vulnerable baby in humble form. He took on human flesh. That was an expression of humility. He suffered and died on our behalf. Again, expression of humility. He was small in the eyes of Rome. If that was true of Christ, how much more true should it be for us? We are followers of him. We walk in his path. Let me close with one final word of encouragement based on the fact that God uses people to accomplish great and extraordinary things. It's true that God accomplishes great things, but I, I don't want you to overlook the fact that he uses people to accomplish great and extraordinary things. Look again at verse seven. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? In case you didn't know, Zerubbabel is not a bad character here, okay? He's a governor figure. He's the kingly figure here. He plays a role in God's plan. It says, he shall bring forward the top stone, referring to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel will bring forward the top stone, the capstone, right? The thing that completes the house, essentially, completes the building of the temple. He will bring it amid shouts of grace. And then verse eight, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. My question to you is this. So who does the work of building God's temple? Is it God or is it Zerubbabel? I don't like to answer both, okay? It's not the wrong answer, but I think the more God-honoring answer is that God is the ultimate builder, of course, but he uses people like Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel is God's instrument. It's God's means through which he accomplishes great things. Not just here, brothers and sisters, but people's names are recorded everywhere in Scripture for this same reason. God honors such people. He doesn't make them invisible completely. I mean, some, yeah, you have unsung heroes, of course, people who are never recorded, but throughout scripture, you have real names of people recorded. God's honoring them for their work. This means, brothers and sisters, that we're, we're meant to play a role in God's story as well. And we are encouraged, I hope you are, 
to, be, to dream big dreams, right? to attempt great things for God, to take bold action rather than to live in fear and passivity. That's one thing I try to fight every day. Paul, don't be so passive. You may think I'm too aggressive, but honestly, my, my common temperament, right, I guess my disposition is to just kind of not do anything, be passive, right? be in the background, not say a word. Why am I up here? I don't want to be up here. Right? I'd rather just be where you are. Okay. I want you to know that Cornerstone Ministry was born out of a desire to do something great for the Lord. Okay. You know, when I moved to Nova in 2009 from Philly, I was actually influenced by people like Randy Pope. He's a retired pastor, but he was known for saying things like, attempt something so impossible that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. That really stuck with me. He's the one who started the Life on Life discipleship movement that we adopted several years ago. And one of the driving principles of that movement, in case you didn't know, is dream big, but start small. Go deep, okay? I'm not gonna mention go deep part today. I just wanna reflect upon, right? Dream big, brothers and sisters. The way, the way you go about your business is you start small. Right, step by step, right, one thought, okay, one idea, leading to action, leading to a destiny. That, that's Zechariah chapter four in a nutshell. Right? Do not despise small things. Trust in God, the great mountain mover, and he will accomplish great things through you. I know this goes against Nova sensibilities because Northern Virginians, I've learned over the years, and I count myself as a Northern Virginian now, so don't take it as me just kind of criticizing you. Right? We, we've learned, or not, not, I've learned, rather, over the years that uh, we tend to be very risk-averse. We love to play everything safe. We wanna make sure that all the necessary conditions are met before we attempt anything risky or dangerous, right? But I tell you, you can't accomplish much with that kind of passive mentality. You need to learn to tackle work that seems daunting and impossible for you. Again, attempt something so impossible that it's doomed to fail unless God is in it. Let me share one snippet from the life of one of the most well-known and influential missionaries who ever lived. His name is Hudson Taylor. And when people think of missions to China, okay, he's one of the first names that come up. Okay, but notice that he wasn't all that impressive early on. Right? He too had to start small. In fact, no one wanted him to go. So listen, this is what Hudson Taylor experienced when he began to dream great things for serving God as a missionary to China in the mid-19th century, a time period that was much 
more of a harsh era, right? It's a harsh place to live if you're in mid-19th century compared to now. But among many obstacles were the difficulty of learning the Mandarin language. So he didn't even know the language very well. And out of all the languages he could have chosen, he chose one of the most difficult languages. He didn't have money. Lack of money was a problem. And the fact that he recently had fallen in love with a woman, okay, many people would have said, just marry and settle down, okay, forget, forget missions for now, right? But believing that God had called him, Taylor pressed on with his plans. One minister asked him how he expected to go to a distant place with no money, okay? Must have been a Northern Virginia pastor, right, giving him such counsel. Taylor replied that he did not know. I, I don't know. It seemed to be probable that I should need to do as the 12, referring to the apostles, and 70, another reference in the New Testament, that I should need to do as the 12 and 70 had done in Judea, right, go without purse or money, relying on him who had sent me to supply all my needs. So he was a dreamer. Not everyone could do this, but he was a dreamer. And there's nothing wrong with being a dreamer. Unable to find a suitable missionary society to support him. In other words, there was no mission organization at the time who wanted to back him because his venture was too risky. Taylor concluded, so God and God alone is my hope and I need no other. That was his mindset. Warned by an experienced missionary that with light-colored hair and blue eyes, he would be rejected by the Chinese, Taylor entrusted this problem to the Lord as well. I think we need more people like this in Northern Virginia. I aspire to have just a little bit of his sort of risk-taking attitude and mentality. Hudson Taylor it was known to live with this motto, Okay. A little thing, yes, it's a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. Okay. So you see how small things lead to great things and extraordinary things, right? So do not despise small things. Because if you're, if you're faithful, if we are faithful in the small things, God has entrusted to us, and they will become the glorious things of the future. I believe that with all my heart. There will be a, a fairly large announcement made to the church over the next few weeks, but I believe that it's time for us to dream again. I came here in 2009 as a dreamer, and then life got busy. I had to take care of five kids. Uh, but I think it's time for us as a ministry to dream once again and to reach more people for the Lord in this area. And so we are, your staff, your leaders are dreaming about a possible church plant. Uh, the details will be, the details will be uh, sent out soon, probably first in the form of an email, and then we'll announce it in person, okay? But something that we can all pray for. Um, Pastor Jacob has agreed to take on this task initially, and he will be given 
roughly a, a year to prepare himself and to mobilize a, a core group. And so I, I want to I wanna humbly ask that you consider that possibility, okay? We're moving toward the West. Okay. Go West, young man. <laughs> Somewhere, okay? So all that, they, that wasn't in my notes, but... Uh, uh, maybe it was the Holy Spirit compelling me to share that, okay? Um, but uh, let, let's pray together, and again, let's not despise small things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that there have been times when we, like the people of old, have looked at the work before us and thought it too small or insignificant. We have allowed mountains of doubts and fear to stand in our way, yet your promise remains unwavering. You will level these mountains, not by our might, nor by our power, but by your spirit. We confess also that we have despised the day of small things, and so forgive us, Lord, and open our eyes to see the significance and the seemingly small tasks and the eternal impact they may have. Lord, we ask for the strength and faith to press on, to overcome these fears, and to view mountains big or small as opportunities for you to display your great power and grace in and through us. May we all faithfully endure through our present hardships so that one day we could rejoice at the sight of your glorious temple that you are continually working to perfect even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll stand together and give praise to God.